We have four weekly meetings left after tonight. A lot of you are graduating soon, so you're just kind of flown by quickly, right? Well, I wanted to start my talk off tonight with a little video. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a little prep before we show it. As many of you guys know, I'm a huge baseball fan. I love the sport of baseball. And my favorite team since I was a little kid is the Boston Red Sox. When I was in high school, a movie came out about the Red Sox called Fever Pitch. Went and saw it in theaters several times. But my love for the Boston Red Sox pales in comparison to Jimmy Fallon's character's love for the Boston Red Sox in this movie. He attends spring training in Florida every single year during his spring break. He owns every bit of Red Sox memorabilia that he can fit into his apartment. And he owns season tickets for every Red Sox home game. That sounds wonderful. Unfortunately, his obsession with the Red Sox has caused some difficulties in his current dating relationship, and he's processing that right now with someone on the baseball team at the school that he teaches. So we can go ahead and show the clip. It's not the time. It's, she doesn't respect how I'm spending my time. You know, now, now she expects me to miss a Yankees game? <laughs> Let's go, Murph. You're up. All right, Mr. Reitman, I got a bat. Let me just leave you with this thought. You love the Sox, but have they ever loved you back? Who are you, Dr. Phil? Get at it, go, go hit, go swing the bat. I love Murph's assessment here as he lets Jimmy Fallon's character know that despite his great love for the Red Sox, his obsession is totally incapable of loving him back. This gets to the heart of what we're going to be looking at tonight. Tonight we're going to be concluding our series on 1 John, Knowing God is Life. Throughout our series, we've seen that God is light, that he's eternal, that he's righteous, that he is love, and that he is faithful. Apart from these things, 1 John is filled with the encouragement that Christians can have absolute certainty of their salvation that Christians are beloved children of God, and that sacrificial love defines our faith. First John is one of the most beautifully encouraging books of the Bible. John's final words, though, seem a bit out of place. After spending the majority of his letter encouraging his audience to believe in Christ and to find their life in Christ alone, his final words are this, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John has already used the phrase or phrases children or little children a dozen times throughout the book. However, up to this point, he hasn't spoken explicitly about idolatry. This seems like an odd way to wrap up such an encouraging letter. It feels a little bit like writing someone a beautiful love letter, telling them all of the reasons that you like them, how much you care about them, and ending it with a, P.S., please don't cheat on me. You can be certain that no matter where it occurs in the Bible, if something seems out of place or unnatural, you better pay close attention. So why does John choose to conclude his letter with this type of exhortation? He does this because he's well acquainted with his enemy, the devil. Despite the overall tone of 1 John, we also see multiple mentions of the Antichrist, the devil, and children of the devil. The disciple whom Jesus loved had experienced the dangerous yet subtle nature of Satan's tactics. 
This mixed with the fatherly affections that he had for the believers to whom he was writing gives us a lot of, a lot of insight as to why he would conclude his letter by saying, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John's warning applies to us in the 21st century just as well as it does to his first century audience. Why? Because despite knowing and experiencing the great love of Jesus that's best demonstrated on the cross, our adversary is still cunning and clever enough to make idols seem more appealing than obeying God. As Christians, we are often tempted to worship empty and false idols that promise freedom, happiness, and life, yet they bring about enslavement, destruction, and death. Tonight, we're going to look quickly at John and his perspective on idolatry, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at a parable from Luke 15 that Jesus told. So before we dig into God's word tonight, let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me to encourage your body of believers. I pray that we would have greater affection for our God and Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, let's look at the end of John, of 1 John uh, chapter 5 right now. 521 simply says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. If you're reading out of the ESV or the NIV translations, you have the word keep. The NASB translation, though, uses the word guard, and I think that that really gets to what John is wanting to convey. The idea here is, is of someone guarding something or someone that's incredibly valuable to them. John's saying, little children, guard yourselves with ongoing, uninterrupted vigilance. Idolatry is therefore incredibly serious as John is communicating that it should take continuous, careful watch for us to guard against our idols. Okay, so what are we supposed to be on the lookout for? What are we supposed to guard against vigilantly? Ezekiel 14.3 clues us in. It says, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. Idolatry is first and foremost an inward heart condition that manifests itself in outward actions. Even though sin and idolatry are not identical, they always go hand in hand. While sin is an act of rebellion against God, idolatry is the object at which the act of sin is aimed. For example, if, if I were to talk poorly about someone behind their back, that's sinful, right? But this act exposes the idol of pride in my heart that is seeking to tear someone down and elevate myself. This is the relationship between sin and idolatry. While the Bible affirms that evil things such as lusting after power, sexual fulfillment outside of marriage, and greedy gain can become idols, we must also guard ourselves from letting good things becoming too central in our hearts. Luke 14, 26 affirms this when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, um, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father, and his mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is using a Jewish idiom here that simply put means that no person, relationship, or object should ever be more important to us than Jesus is. We commit idolatry when we seek to have our deepest senses of joy, hope, 
happiness, comfort, and security be met in anything or anyone else other than Jesus Christ. This means that wonderful blessings from the Lord, such as family, school, dating relationships, spouses, internships, athletics, music, jobs, even our own morality can become idols. We have a terrible ability to turn God's good gifts into something that they were never meant to be, our source of identity, hope, and security. And we all do this. We are all idolaters. This is just part of our human condition since we're all sinful. So that means we no longer need to be asking the question, do I have idols in my heart? But we need to start asking, what are the idols that are vying for more control in my heart? A great way to answer this question is actually asking yourself a whole new set of questions. I have some on the screen for us. First one, am I willing to sin to get this? Am I willing to sin if I think that I'm going to lose this? Outside of healthy obligation, what receives the majority of my time, thought, and money? Do I turn to this as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? And what are my first thoughts when I wake up and the last thoughts as I'm falling asleep? Remember, John says we are to continually keep on guard against idolatry. These counterfeit gods, as Tim Keller calls them, are always seeking to grow deep roots in our hearts. And if we're not careful, they will control us and they will destroy our relationship with Jesus and with people. Why would we ever give ourselves to something that would destroy us. Seems really silly, right? It's because sin and idols are deceitful about their destructive nature. Satan doesn't walk up to us and say, hey, do you want me to destroy your life really quickly? I can do that for you, right? He wraps it up in a beautiful package that's appealing to us. So we get a clear picture from a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. You can open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. The audience here in Luke 15 is a mix of tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. Basically, we have society's outcasts mixing with the elite, and Jesus aims this parable directly at this audience. Luke 15, we're going to start in verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 32, says this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. And he called out to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back from safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this your son came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I think that many of us tend to read this parable and think, great, I just need to not act like the sinful younger son, and if I do, I can be forgiven, and then we move on. But there's so much more in play here Remember, the Jewish audience was a mixture of those who were looked down upon and the moral elite. This parable addresses not only those who are wicked and wayward, but those who find their identity in their own morality. That being said, we need to focus carefully on both sons. So my first two points that I want to draw out of our passage tonight are that first, sin and idolatry are deceitful. And second, that sin and idolatry are destructive. Let's go ahead and see how this plays itself out, first off, in the life of the younger son. The passage begins with a highly offensive request from the younger son. A person's inheritance is divided up normally when they die. The younger son is essentially coming to his father and saying, I really wish you were dead because all I want is my inheritance that I'm going to be receiving. So could you just go ahead and give that to me? His sin is obvious. But his idols are less obvious because they reflect an inward heart condition. Verses 13 and 30 give us a little bit more insight into what the younger son truly valued. Verse 13 says that he traveled to a far country and squandered his property in reckless living. And in verse 30, the older son's strong assumption is that his younger brother has used it all on prostitutes. Essentially, the young sons converted all of his father's land and livestock into money, run off to the big city, and just lived it up. Not exactly what the party scene looked like in first century Israel, but he just dove headfirst into it, because not much longer after that, he'd spent the entire inheritance. The younger son had a loving father at home. He was always provided for but he was deceived by the idols of pleasure, money, and excitement. These idols promised new friendships, a lack of work and obligation, plenty of fine food and wine, and no strings attached sex. 
That sounds a lot more exciting than hanging out on a country farm with your dad and your older judgmental brother, right? You would think so, but the younger son's idols of pleasure, money, and excitement blinded him to the blessings that he had at home with his family. These idols simultaneously held out empty promises of an exciting new life, but ultimately left him bankrupt and completely alone. So the younger son's idols were not only deceitful, but they were destructive as well, as all idols are. They left him penniless, friendless, and starving. Verse 16 says that he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Idols are deceitful and destructive. Now let's look at the older son. The final eight verses of Luke 15 focus on this older son. He learns from one of the servants that his wayward younger brother, who for all intents and purposes was presumed dead, had returned. The music, dancing, and killing of the fattened calf signals to him that his father is actually really overjoyed that his little brother's back. And we see his response and the desires of his heart in verses 28 through 30. Look at verse 29. He tries to justify his anger by telling his father, I've always been here, I've always served you, and I have never disobeyed you. Then he says, this son of yours, he can't even say my brother, he says, this son of yours has devoured your property with prostitutes. He also complains about never receiving any compensation for his years of service. This mixed with the fact that his father has killed the family's prized calf for his wicked little brother infuriates him even more. The whole situation does seem pretty unfair, right? But again, that's because even though the idols of self-righteousness are different than the idols of license, they are just as deceitful. The older son had let idols of morality, obedience, and his own brand of justice grow in his heart. He felt entitled and obligated to what his father owned. And when his younger brother didn't have to pay for any of his transgressions against the family, he got angry. It's really interesting, but the older brother, in fact, acts a lot more like the younger brother than we first give him credit for. Verse 28, reminds us, he reminds his father about how much he's served him, not how much he loves him. He doesn't love his father. In the same verse, his ultimate motives are made clear. He expects that his obedience would have at least earned him a young goat to eat with his friends. Really, he just wants the exact same things that his little brother so brazenly asked for at the beginning of the parable. He's just trying to work to earn it. The older son had a loving father, and he was always provided for, but he was deceived by the idols of morality and obedience and his own definition of justice. These idols promised a long-term payoff of inheritance, compensation that his little brother could never deserve, and a father who would reward his hard work. The set of idols it not only deceived him, but it destroyed the relationships in his life. It destroyed his relationship with his little brother. He couldn't even say his name, this son of yours. But it destroyed his relationship with his father as well. He's outside the party. He's not spending time with his dad. 
While the younger brother's idols left him financially bankrupt, the older brother's idols left him relationally bankrupt. Idols are deceitful. Idols are destructive. But finally, we see that idols are defeated. And they're defeated by the love of the father. The two sons were searching for happiness, fulfillment, and security in temporary and finite things while failing to see that the relationship that their father provided gave them all of these things naturally. The definition of the word prodigal is to be reckless and extravagant. That's why it's called the parable of the prodigal son, right? This does relate well to the younger son's actions, but it actually defines the father's love as well. He loves both of his idolatrous sons with a reckless and extravagant love. His sinful youngest son returns home ready to be an indentured servant on the father's farm to make up for his transgressions. But what does the father do? He feels compassion for him. And he runs to him and embraces him and kisses him and throws him a celebratory feast. This is an astounding portrayal of sacrificial love, forgiveness, and grace. The younger brother isn't the only one who receives this prodigal love from the father, though. The older brother does as well. The father leaves the joyful celebration and goes out to find his older son and begs him to come back in. And the older son doesn't deserve this gracious gesture. The father begs his self-righteous son to come celebrate and enjoy what idolatry can never provide, true fulfillment, security, and relationship. This parable finds its true and ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you and I are the sinful, idolatrous sons. We know that our heavenly Father loves us, and yet we still run after empty idols time and time again. We run after idols of sexual fulfillment through pornography and masturbation and sex before marriage. We seek our identity in idols such as personal morality, comparison, gossip, godly activities, and achievement. We seek our security in idols such as relationships, money, and possessions. I could go on and on. I could continue listing the idols that we create in our hearts. But God, in his prodigal love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life that was completely free of idolatry. God's reckless and extravagant love is most clearly demonstrated by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in the place of sinners in order to supply those who trust in Jesus Christ with complete forgiveness. This, however, is only available to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, that he has taken on the payment and debt that they have deserved. If you're here tonight and you've not entrusted Jesus Christ, your life to Jesus Christ, I beg you to do so. Just as the father begs his oldest son, come to Jesus. If you have questions about this or just want to talk about this, come talk to me after crew or fill it out on your blue cards. Uh, we have a lot of staff members who would love to help you know how you can have a relationship with God. I want to conclude by sharing a few thoughts that over the last month, I feel like God has really been impressing upon me. First John, again, was written to believers 
It's written to a group of Christians. And so I want to take a moment to talk about gospel-motivated obedience. As Christians, you and I can never add to or subtract from our salvation. Our salvation at all points is a gracious gift from God. The gospel is great news that Jesus Christ took upon himself the punishment for your sins and for mine. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Go ahead and read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 along with me. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm sure you guys have heard that a lot, right? It's in the uh, How Would You Like to Know God Personally booklet, right? But verse 10 goes on and says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Yes, our salvation is a completely free gift that is undeserved, but the Bible always affirms that, that the gospel should spur us on to look more like Jesus in terms of obedience and good works. Luke uh, 14, 27 affirms this. Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Carrying our own cross involves dying to our sinful flesh so that we might be, in the words of Paul, conformed to the image of God's Son. God's free, undeserved gift of salvation to sinners is radical, but I think it's fair to ask, if you know the gospel, if you've heard the gospel, but your life is continually plagued by idolatry in an ongoing way, have you truly understood the gospel? Throughout 1 John, the apostle affirms multiple times that if we truly know and love God, we will keep his commandments. In other words, obedience and growing in Christ-like character are the natural responses to understanding the depths of God's love. The final thing that I want to look at tonight is how we can practically replace the idols of our heart. I use the word replace because if we merely remove an idol, a new idol will grow back. Our hearts are really good at creating idols. Idols must be replaced by affection for God. Let's look quickly, very quickly, I promise, at four verses together. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 1.29 says, For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. And finally, Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Are you seeing the connections there? God's word calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to toil for the sake of the gospel, and to put to death the deeds of the body. As Christ followers, we are responsible for our obedience and sanctification. God isn't going to just suddenly make us look exactly like Christ without any effort on our own parts. It's our responsibility to actively search out and then replace the idols in our hearts with the one true God. Yet these verses also show us that it is God who works in us to will and to work, that he provides the energy within us, and that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. 
Tim Keller puts it this way in Romans for you. He says, not only is there no hope in ourselves for our salvation, but there is also no hope in ourselves for our obedience. For any real change, we cannot rely on our own efforts, but only, as Paul now explains, on the work of the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment, we are to rely on the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be obedient sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. So what does this look like practically? Ephesians 5.18 calls us to be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.16 calls us to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 and 23 tells us what the fruit should, of the Spirit looks like in the life of believers. And Romans 8.5 calls us to live according to the Spirit and to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. These are all wonderful verses to help remind us how desperately we need the Holy Spirit and His power to help us in our battle against the evil one who wants to convince us that idols are more worth investing in than God. I think that one of the best ways to apply these verses that I've shared to you tonight is in our prayer lives. I would encourage you to pray that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that he would give you a greater desire to pray more often, that he would give you, create in you a desire to spend more time with God and his word. Pray that he would help you recognize any idols in your heart and pray that he would supply the power for you to replace those idols with a greater love for God. The only way that we can ever hope to see consistent victory over sin and idolatry is to rely solely on the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Brothers and sisters, because of God's reckless and extravagant love for you, I urge you, keep yourselves from idols. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your reckless and extravagant love. The gospel is such good news. It is life, and it is a life-changing message. We praise you that this is the type of God who you are, that you love us this radically. And we pray that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to be obedient sons and daughters who are quick to recognize idolatry and flee from it and be more and more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.